As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Let's dive into today's conversation regarding life's myriad transitions and how we refine our responses in our relationships, our wellness, our households, our work, and in our practices. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have a dear, long-time student, colleague, and friend here today. Her name is Diane Osgood. She's one of my heroes. She's a PhD. She's a pioneer in corporate sustainability. For over 30 years, she has helped companies to innovate, to manufacture, and to sell sustainable products that are better for the planet and for the people. It is so exciting to have you here. She believes that everyone has a shopping superpower to purposefully use the power of your wallet to build a better world. Diane is particularly passionate about sharing tricks and tips and strategies that anyone can use in your day-to-day life to help address climate change. She's a contributing author and chapter editor of the new bestseller, The Carbon Almanac. I'm so excited to be holding a copy of this in my hands. She's also currently writing a guidebook for shopping with your values. She's a longtime beginner, in her words, yoga practitioner. The Carbon Almanac, in case you're listening and you want to go look it up, it is published by Penguin. It was published in July of 2022. It is also available in Dutch, Italian, and very soon in Czech, Greek, French, Korean, and several other languages. And you can look that up at thecarbonalmanac.org. That is the most crowdsourced, incredible project I've ever heard about, and we'll hear about it more in just a moment. There is a free ebook from Diane. So if you're curious about that, go to dianeosgood.com and I'll spell that for you. It's D I A N E O S G O O D.com. Diane, welcome to the podcast. Boy, I am so excited to be here. It's such an honor and a thrill. Um, I'm a great fan of your podcast. It just amuses me to be on the other end of the uh, microphone today. So thank you so much. You're most welcome, and I'm equally amused. So I want to start with you personally, and then we'll move on to the Carbon Almanac, because I think both are very, very important. How did you come across this passion and sort of aspiration of yours to help people shop their values? Because we all have to shop you know, for certain things. Um, How did this come about? I've worked on sustainability for a very long time. And the reason I work on sustainability and the reason why I've shifted my focus recently to us as individuals, as opposed to us as people who work for corporations is the same, which was back in the early 90s, actually the late 80s, um, when I was a banker of all things, I used to spend my vacations out in the jungle in uh, Kalimantan Tenga, that's uh, Borneo, studying wild orangutans. It's kind of a strange pastime, but I was very, very curious about the origins of humankind, 
which led me to a love of primates. And slowly I realized I was actually spending more time thinking about why are the logs going down the rivers as opposed to remaining in the forest where these beloved orangutans live. And I had this very simple aha moment, which is they're not deforesting the land for the fun of it. They're doing it for economic reasons because someone is paying them for the timber. And if the demand for that timber stopped then we wouldn't be facing deforestation. Now, that's an incredibly simplified, uh, relatively naive aha moment, but it was a catalyst for me to change my career. And it's a very similar aha moment I had about seven years ago that I'd been practicing supply-side economics, helping companies make whatever they make, make their widgets, as we call them, with less environmental impact, with better terms and conditions for everybody who's employed in the process of making that, um, to ensure that it's non-toxic and things like that. But really, I hadn't focused on the demand side, on the fact that if we as individuals stopped shopping, stopped purchasing certain items, eventually the company would either have to withdraw that product from the market or seriously innovate and change it so that it met the specifications, it met the needs of what we really want. And again, that's a fairly simplified version of the story because there's all sorts of things that go on that don't make it quite as a direct line as that. But it led me to the conclusion that there's room for helping people understand the power that they have. And the first step is getting them good facts and good information so that, yeah, you can make a different choice. Yeah, that all makes good sense to me. I'm really, um, I'm kind of impressed about your time in Borneo, and I'm also really grateful for all the work that you've done and the ways in which you've very quietly but very efficiently changed, really, the opinions and the behaviors of so many thus far and more to come. How did you get involved with the Carbon Almanac? Uh, The Carbon Almanac has been an extraordinary experience. Um, You mentioned it was collaborative. I've worked on collaborative projects before, but nothing like this. I was probably in the first 15 people, 20 people invited to join. It was simply through a network. Um, We only know each other virtually. Up until last month, I had not met a single person in real life that's worked on this book. and Someone reached out that knew I had this background, and uh, we set forth to write it in a record four months. Every person involved is 100% volunteer. No one is paid. Wow. And that includes Seth Godin, who is the founder and the founding editor of the Carbon Almanac, and really the genius behind setting up an environment in which deep collaboration happens, and it happens on a permission basis. And it enabled people from around the world to come together with a huge range of expertise and um, skills to bring to the project, and everyone pitched in. I, Seth is also one of my heroes, by the way. I can't wait to have him on the podcast. But his work, teaching collaborative effort, and he even has a piece on how we all could possibly see everyone else in our particular uh, spaces as competitors, or we could reach out to them 
and watch the proverbial pie gets bigger. And I think this is one of those cases. I'm holding the carbon almanac in my hands, our listener. If you are alive listening, if you are a human being, if you have kids or you don't have kids, if you have parents or you don't have parents anymore, please find the carbon almanac. This is for the planet. It is for us. It is together. And it will make a difference in your understanding of what is going on. This book is brilliant. It has enlightened me in so many ways. It has changed my behaviors in my home. It has changed my uh, shopping behaviors. It has changed the way I think about my clothing. Everything, everything has changed. So I would like to dive into the Carbon Almanac with your permission. Yes, that, that's amazing to hear. You know, we made the book, we wrote the book because the challenges we face on climate change are systemic. And we need to hold that contradiction in. As an individual, how can I engage with a systemic issue that is a result of how our economy is built and how energy systems are built and now it's laced with politics and all of these things that are so much beyond the individual and yet how do I claim what I can do and feel good about but more importantly know that what I'm doing actually matters And that's the contradiction or the opposing thoughts that we hold in the Carbon Almanac. And I hope it's something that people take away both the understanding of how complex it is, but also what I can do to make a difference. Yes, indeed. I think that has been accomplished, actually. Fully accomplished. Um, I'm on page six right now for our listener who will be interested in reading the book and in taking notes. So, On page six, we're talking about the tyranny of convenience. This is a scandal that I haven't really thought about. But most of us who were raised, let's say, in the 70s and perhaps even into the 80s, we saw the Jetsons, food at the push of a button, transport at the push of a button. Everything was about the glorification of convenience. We now know that convenience has its perils. From the quick shipping of Amazon to the fast fashion that costs us in ways incalculable, and we'll talk about that. There's a whole section on it in the Carbon Almanac. We are the slaves of convenience, and this is causing a good percentage of the problem with our climate crisis, climate catastrophe as we now know it. And I quote from the book, perhaps our humanity is sometimes expressed in inconvenient actions and in time-consuming pursuits. Perhaps this is why, with every advance of convenience, there have always been those who resist it. And I thought it might be interesting to give an example of how I am relinquishing convenience in certain realms. I no longer order food into the house. And that was a, you know, I know this is totally a first world problem. I get it. But it was something my family had become accustomed for a very long time. There are so many costs associated with ordering food in. And aside from the packaging, which is very often single-use plastic, although more and more uh, establishments are getting used to not using single-use plastic, to the transportation of the person who is bringing you the food, to the extra resources 
vis-a-vis the money spent, none of it makes sense to me anymore. It makes much more sense, per the quote that I just read, to actually take an hour, cook a meal, chop, cook, prepare, serve, eat. Even though it feels, quote-unquote, inconvenient, I've recalibrated our household to include that time in the day. So that's become the new normal. My hope is that other people will be inspired to do the same. And Diane, I thought it might be interesting for you to talk about perhaps one way in which you have relinquished the tyranny of convenience in your own life. That's a beautiful example. I see the tyranny of convenience as part of our evolution. You know, it came out of an era when um, all those things, you know, the Jetsons didn't exist. And we're now in an era where we do push a button and pretty much get stuff within 24 hours, or if it's food, within 30 minutes. And that has changed our expectations. And so slowing down to ratchet back is a practice. And there are many moments of beauty to be found in that practice when we allow it and give it space. For me, I think um, just one simple thing that I've been doing more of is just hand-washing clothes as opposed to just, you know, a boom oh, wow. in the washing machine. Yes, It's yes. a really small thing, um, but again, there's something quite pleasurable about just doing one piece at a time or two pieces at a time and catching, oh, well, you know, here's a loose thread or maybe there's a stain I can get out this way. And it just keeps me a little bit closer to those items. It's just what I'm choosing right now to focus on is Mm -hmm. kind of extreme slow fashion. And I think everyone can find those things where stepping back from the tyranny of convenience works for them. I also have my kid, per the slow fashion, refolding and rewearing his things that can be reworn that aren't dirty or, you know, whatever. And making him aware of that was actually a, a nice shift in our household too. Let's go to page 20. What is climate change? For our listener who is still a little nebulous for you, perhaps, and I would understand that. I've learned so much from reading this book. Humans are causing the change in climate. Since the Industrial Revolution nearly 140 years ago, the Earth's temperature has spiked. (laughs) Scientists collectively agree that coal, oil, and gas burned by humans is the primary cause, followed by deforestation and intensive farming. So I'm sitting at dinner last night. I'm doing some reading out loud with James to uh, study for this episode recording. And he says, do you know what petroleum is? Do you know what gas is? And I was like, you know what? I don't. What is it? And he said, it's when over many, many hundreds of years, plant and organic matter, including living bodies of animals and beings and so forth, decomposes, sinks down into our planet Earth, and becomes literally this matter that we then drill for and draw up from the earth. And it really opened my eyes because now I'm understanding that if we too quickly are taking that, extracting that matter from the earth, and the earth doesn't have time to decompose other matter to make more... We will literally run out, not just overheat the planet and the atmosphere, but literally run out of 
that matter because we're moving it, extracting it too quickly. This really gave me pause. Then I read the section about fossil fuels, which I'll read to you now. Coal, comma, oil, which is petroleum, and natural gas are considered fossil fuels because like fossils, they formed deep in the earth from the remains of plants, animals, and other living beings from long ago. Coal and natural gas are burned at large power plants to generate electricity. And petroleum is the main ingredient in gasoline. So what is the greenhouse effect? Burning coal or oil or natural gas releases carbon that mixes with oxygen to make carbon dioxide. This is called the greenhouse effect. Carbon dioxide and other gases act as a metaphorical roof of a glass greenhouse around the earth, letting sunlight pass through without allowing heat to escape. So other greenhouse gases that trap heat include methane and water vapor. Until recently, some of the heat the sun provides has been able to easily escape the Earth's atmosphere, of course, thus keeping the Earth's temperatures relatively constant. Now, the buildup of greenhouse gases is literally insulating the Earth like a blanket, causing temperatures to suddenly climb. Now, we're talking about the impact on the Earth of one degree centigrade. It may not seem like much of a temperature increase, but exactly like a fever. It's enough to destabilize the organism and cause extreme weather, (laughs) just like your body when you get a really high fever. Hurricanes, snowstorms, heat waves, downpours, high winds, droughts, flooding landslides, wilder winter weather. Sorry, and I think that may be meant to be milder winter weather, but I'm not sure. Um, And since this industrial revolution nearly 140 years ago, the temperature has spiked so many degrees Celsius that we are now in a place where within the next 10 years, this will be disastrous for all of us. We will not be able to live in the temperature that is coming. Diane, when you started to see this book come together, what was your first thought? regarding how this would impact all of our attention and our understanding of this one degree Celsius? The first thought and foremost hope is that the Carbon Almanac and all the resources provide people the facts and helps them understand the science. It's a biophysical process and there's the science to understand it and to understand the changes that we're currently facing. I like to to say lightheartedly, it's all the facts and none of the opinions. And understanding what's occurring is the first step in taking action and really empowering yourself to be um, engaged with the subject and engage with our world in a different way. And so... Understanding this long diatribe that I've just read and sort of explained does help me to make different choices, to, you know, not go ahead and press order on every separate item, but actually to, I mean, this is a small thing, but make a cart, wait till it's pretty full and order everything together so it all comes at the same time rather than three trucks, it's one truck. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stuff like that 
our listener, once you start to really sort of wrap your mind around what one degree Celsius is doing to the planet, what your role is in that one degree Celsius, you can make tiny, tiny little choices that will make a really big difference, uh, especially when other people around you do. Tell me, Diane, did you edit the entire book with help of others, or can you explain what your role was precisely? Yeah, my role is um, I was editor for the chapter on whose role, which meant that not only did I write a good chunk of it, but I engaged with a bunch of writers from all over the world um, who contributed, and then we edited together, made sure that it was coherent, and then I also wrote a couple of the other entries as well. It's funny, the that section is one that I like double dog-eared, <laughs> folded in half. To our listener, we're skipping over, I'm on page like 40-something right now, all the way to the end. Whose job is it? Uh, we're skipping over the role of tourism in climate catastrophe. We're skipping over so many things. But I would like to go to this chapter because I want to make sure that we get to it and I don't want to miss it. When we talk about this, whose job is it? Whose role is it? The roles of government, business, and individuals in uh, creating change. I'm going to turn this page and get to the Glasgow Breakthrough Agenda. Can we talk about this for a little moment? Yes, yes. During uh, COP26, which was the UN Climate Change Conference of 2021, we had 42 world leaders whose nations effectively represent 70% of the global GDP, the gross domestic product, announced the breakthrough agenda to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. They pledged to work together to meet the goals of the agenda. I read on. The five breakthrough goals are power, clean power, is the most affordable and reliable option for all countries to meet their power needs efficiently by 2030. It's in eight years. Road transport, second breakthrough goal. Zero emission vehicles are the new normal. Did you know, I didn't know this, did you know, our listener, that in 2021, 92% of the vehicles purchased in the country of Norway were electric, did not use gas or diesel? I didn't know that until I read this book. Um, the third breakthrough goal is steel. Near zero emission steel is the preferred choice in global markets with efficient use and near zero emission steel production established and growing in every region within the next eight years. Fourth breakthrough goal, hydrogen, affordable, renewable, and low carbon hydrogen is globally available by 2030. And finally, agriculture. Climate resilient, sustainable agriculture is the most attractive and widely adopted option for farmers everywhere by 2030. Diane, how are we getting this done? That's a very good question. Um, it's the mechanism for the COP process is that it goes through countries, through the nation state, through you know national governments. I just want to add one thing about the Glasgow Breakthrough Agenda, which I think is incredibly important, which is governments have decided to meet every year to keep up accountability. So next month will be the next meeting in um, Cairo. And so, so COP27, is that counting as COP27 or is that just a, Yes, it is. Something, okay. Oh, and cool. it's to keep nations on their toes with their pledges. And I think that's really important and necessary. 
um, it's been proven necessary. So these, you know, when you look at power, road transport, hydrogen, agriculture, these are all big systems. And as individuals, it's very hard to hook into them. Some of us have the luxury of being able to choose an electric vehicle if vehicle ownership is part of the lifestyle. Many of us can choose to switch to green power um, by choosing who sells you your energy in your home. In most places in the United States and most places in Europe, you can make that choice. You can also invest in alternative energies and solar and things like that. Mm -hmm. We don't have a lot of impact on steel or hydrogen and really have a light touch on agriculture. But as consumers, as shoppers, we can choose to buy products and products and services from companies that are making the changes and helping you understand that they're making the changes. That's particularly true for food, but it's also true for, you know, big products, you know, buildings and things like that where steel um, and lots of energy has gone into them. So it's the hook as the individual at the choice of what we buy and very importantly, as citizens, how we vote. Because again, it's our national governments that are making these commitments. It's our state governments that can take the lead. So California has put into law that by 2035, all new cars will be electric. It's a big advancement. And that was that is at huge. the state level. And then at the municipal yeah, level, big. it's small but important things like voting to make sure that your city changes all of their uh, light fixtures to primarily solar and having municipal composting and things like that. So there's a lot of almost mundane but incredibly important things that city governments decide on, and we get to vote as citizens. So when I look at the Glasgow agenda, as a voter, I'm excited about it. As a shopper, it's a little bit harder to get my hooks into it, but I still can. Thank you, Element, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. We have been personally using Element for well over a year. Element is spelled L-M-N-T. Elemental electrolyte salts that have completely changed the game around my house. Every night before bed, James and I split a packet. Helps us sleep, helps us get good solid rest, and helps combat fatigue, muscle pain, fogginess, irritability even. Did you know that your cells need electrolytes for optimal function? And if you're struggling with any of those things, you might just be deficient in electrolytes. They facilitate hundreds of cellular functions in your body, including nerves, hormone regulation, nutrient absorption, fluid balance. Element contains 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. No artificial anything in here, no sugar, no nothing. My favorite flavors, as I said, orange watermelon and the chocolate caramel in hot water is just incredible. Element comes in tiny single-serving packets you can carry with you wherever you go. They're great on planes as well. With my link, you get a free sample pack with any order so that you can try all the flavors. And that link is drinkelement.com forward slash Elena. The spelling is D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com forward slash Elena. Thank you. Thank you so much again, Element. Again, the link, drinkelement.com forward slash Elena. And 
The UNFCCC, just to educate our listener on some things that perhaps they would not know. I know I did not know what this was. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. This was created in an attempt to come together as a global community to address this challenge. There are two sort of subsidiary agreements within the UNFCCC. Uh, The Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement. And I'll just go over this quickly, and then you can add whatever thoughts you have, Diane, that might be helpful for our listener. The Kyoto Protocol was signed in 1997, aimed to control emissions of greenhouse gases in a way that reflected differences in nations' economic development and capacities. So this is really neat, because it doesn't assume that each nation can do the same thing. Um, First commitment period, 2008 to 2012, There was a list of 36 Annex 1 countries with developed or growing market economies, all of whom committed to a greenhouse gas emission cap. They all complied with the protocol. Nine of them had to compensate for their emissions by funding emissions reductions in other countries. Uh, There was a second commitment period from 2013 to 2020. It was agreed to in 2012, but for some reason hasn't entered into force. Why? Uh, not enough governments signed up to it. And that's why there's so much excitement about the Paris Agreement. So Kyoto... T- teach us about this. Yeah, teach us so about Kyoto, Paris. in my view, uh, was kind of the warm-up act that should have really been the main band at the show, but it turned out to be, unfortunately, the warm-up act. I think it very much helped us get the frameworks right with you know Annex 1 and Annex 2 countries, which is a little bit technical, But back to, as you beautifully said, because not all countries have contributed equally to the problem of climate change, nor are all countries equally ready and able to make large investments in changes, some compensation and leniency and trade and support needs to be established. So the Kyoto Protocol established kind of the foundation and the Paris Agreement finally brought together all of the countries, including the United States, to agree on our targets of 1.5 degree change and a timetable. And again, um, now that we've had Glasgow, this new commitment to meet every year to keep on task. So it's just like having a to-do list you look at every day instead of once a year. You know, countries Mm -hmm. operate, you know, decision makers, our leaders, our national leaders kind of work at the same level. If they have to go back every year to say what's been done, what's not been done, it keeps things top of mind. I was listening to Christiana Figueres on uh, the Way Out is In podcast recently. She has a couple of really great episodes where she talks about her role in the Paris Agreement and uh, learned a lot from her. So perhaps our listener, that's someone else to look up, Christiana Figueres. I'm going to go ahead and reach out to her for the podcast as well, if I can have the honor of having her on. In this chapter, we have a whole section devoted to the indigenous youth of Panama, uh, the Guna people who live in the San Blas Islands, just north of the coast of Panama, along the northern coast They made this gigantic, what's called a mola. I have a few from traveling in Panama. Um, But they made a really big one that they hung in Glasgow, uh, sort of without permission, let's say. But nobody took it down. They 
brought attention to the plight of indigenous and uh, underserved communities. And I've been talking about this with some friends as we read through All We Can Save, a book by Ayanna Elizabeth. Oh my God, I'm forgetting her name right now because I'm nervous. And uh, Kathleen or Catherine Wilkinson. So sorry, I'm not recalling at this moment. But All We Can Save is a super important book that also highlights the plight of women and girls, particularly in underserved communities, indigenous communities, as the climate warms, these communities, the the sort of foundational structures and systems break down. The girls are under the most threat of these system breakdowns as a result of climate change. So I really appreciated that you included this and brought my attention to these youth. And I wonder if you could share with us how this piece and this information came to you guys as you were editing this chapter. Thanks. It's probably my favorite page in the section. Um, and it's, well, it's a two-page spread with uh, a great photograph of those involved and their mola. It's critical because it draws the our attention to what's happening to low-lying coastal areas and small island states, meaning countries like Tonga and Tahiti and many, many, many countries that exist as islands. And also coastal lands, coastal lands along throughout all of Central America, throughout Florida, for example, the United States. Right. And it calls out the importance that sea level rise, the increase in wild, wicked storms, the ferocity of hurricanes and tornadoes, that these are very vulnerable geographic areas and therefore the people there really need special attention and we need to remember that lives are literally on the line here. The second point I love about this that comes out of this is the role of art. The mole is beautiful. It's beautiful. It takes your breath away. And it, it is. It's a giant for our listener. You have to look it up. No, wait, you have to, we have to tell our listener to look it up because Google MOLA, M-O-L-A, SAIL, S-A-I-L, Glasgow, COP26. You will freak out. It is so majestic and beautiful, honoring the earth, the sky. Oh, wow. The sun, the moon is so beautiful. Yeah. And that opens our hearts when we see the art and it gets us out of our head and our kind of freaked out state. And that's where inspiration and action really comes from. And then third, it's about the generation that brought the MOLA, that brought this to our attention, and the urgency that different generations hold. Um, I'm not one that believes to, oh, let the youth sort it out. I don't agree with that at all. We, We need to sort it out altogether, and there should be no discrimination amongst generations. And the attention to include the voice of all generations is very important moving forward as we find solutions to these types of challenges. Yes. To that point, uh, a few pages later, 249, there's a whole section on youth-led climate litigation. So if you're listening to us, and you have kids who are really passionate about it, check out page 249 in the Carbon Almanac. There are four cases that highlight one unique underlying principle to redress harms that will occur in the future. This is crazy. 
One example, uh, Juliana versus the United States of America. This was a constitutional climate case filed in 2015 by 21 youths represented by Our Children's Trust. The plaintiffs allege that the U.S. government has, quote, affirmatively contributed to climate change, violated the youngest generation's constitutional rights to life, liberty, and property, as well as failed to protect essential public trust resources. And in February 2021, the Ninth Circuit Court affirmed a prior decision that the plaintiffs lacked the legal right to sue and urged the plaintiffs and government to work toward a settlement. Get this, after five months, the parties failed to reach resolution, and as of December 2021, the courts are considering a request by the plaintiffs to file an amended complaint. In effect, no movement there. Keep trying. This is ridiculous that there is no movement. In Germany, there's a group of German youths in February 2020 against Germany's Federal Climate Protection Act claiming that 55% of target reduction in greenhouse gases by 2030 was insufficient to protect their and future generations. On April 29th of 2021, the Federal Constitutional Court ruled in favor of the young people claiming aspects of the German basic law represented, quote, a legal norm that is intended to bind the political process in favor of ecological concerns. There is hope. Um, you know, I don't have a whole lot of hope in the U.S. in terms of our justice system. I think it's really just a lot of bullshit, at least in my observation, if I can speak frankly. Um, but I do feel a lot of hope that the youth are initiating movements and working to inspire those of us who are of age uh, to take chances and make choices. It's fabulously inspiring that these youth have come together in multiple places to bring lawsuits. And one part of that inspiration for me is they found what they're really excited about, which is using the rule of law um, to fight their case. Others might be really um, excited, like I am, around the economics. Others might be excited by you, Elena, and what you bring, which is this beautiful podcast to enable those who enable other people to make good choices. And so it shows that there are multiple roles. It's like this big puzzle, and everybody's got a piece, and it's identifying what piece resonates with you. So if it's environmental law or human rights law, go for it. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Because here's four really strong examples of making great progress, despite some of the short-term outcomes, by applying law. Another possible avenue for our listener, page 282, Influential Artists and Climate. There's an entire sort of index of artists, including Christo and Jean-Claude and David Buckland and David Maisel and Andreas Gursky, all these different artists from various different countries who are creating art to bring our attention to this matter in a way that might really inspire. It's pages long of an index of artists. So this book is, I think it should be required reading for all households. I wish there were a way to find tax money to just put it in everyone's house, you know? Alina, I do want to say that because we've written this and done all of the work 
as volunteers pro bono. All of the proceeds that an author would normally receive, we are plowing back into free distributions to nonprofits and to some schools. And um, I ask anybody that's curious to go to their library and ask that their library carry it. That's another great way to get it into your community. Awesome. Awesome. And is there a way for our listener to reach out to petition to get copies of this book? Please Let's say do. if they're a teacher. Please, yes. On the website, you'll see um, there's a lot of, first of all, there's a lot of free resources. There's a free children's book. It's called Generation C. It's out in multiple languages. There's an educator's guide. So if you're a teacher somewhere, there's a great resource for you that's free. There's a photo book. Um, we had images from very well-established artists and uh, a lot of good volunteers who are um, passionate photographers, and they put together a beautiful book. It's great to flip through. And there's a section called Connect the Dots. So if there's a one article you find in the book that is particularly fascinating to you, if you go to Connect the Dots, type in the page number, it'll tell you what other articles relate to that uh, you may find of interest. And finally, is Connect the Dots a site? It's a site within the carbonalmanac.org. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Yeah. And the other thing is that every reference is provided on the website. So you can track all of our facts and the source material. It's 100% transparent. And if there's ever a correction or an update, we will include it on the website. And on the website, you'll find um, a, the contact us, and that's where you can drop us a note if you know of a nonprofit um, that might be interested in partnering with us. And we also partner with companies who are interested in buying the book for their employees or their customers. For example, the wonderful Eileen Fisher clothing stores are a partner, and they provide copies of the book in some of their shops. It's really incredible. I can't thank you enough for your time today, for the time that you took in editing this, for my fresh education in all of this, and for the choices that I've started to make myself, for the simplification that it's brought to my heart and to my life. Um, just incredible. Thank you so much. Oh, Elena, thank you so, so much. It's been such a pleasure to be here and an honor uh, I hope that everyone finds the book a great resource. And I thank you so much for your time. Mm, thank you so much as well. I super appreciate that you've taken this time and I can't wait to see where this takes us. Thank you, Diane, so much. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day. 
supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.